If you haven't met me before, my name's Alice. Um, hi. I had some lovely smiles just then. <laughs> um, it's really nice to see you. Um, I work here at St. Peter's. And I am incredibly encouraged by all of those words and senses of what God is saying because actually tonight you will, it will make sense as I start speaking. But basically all of those words, I'm like, yes. Yes, that's exactly what I'm speaking on. So there's a sense of encouragement that God is really doing a specific thing and that he's speaking to us about a specific thing. And I always find that so encouraging because then, you know, we can get on board with what he's already doing. Um, if you've been here over the last seven, eight weeks, you'll know that we have been in a talk series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Et voila. Did I do that well? I suddenly realized there's French people in the room. <laughs> um, and it's based on a brilliant book by a guy called Pete Scazzaro. And we've been thinking about how each of us can better understand our emotional selves, how we can engage with our emotional selves, and then how in response we can then come to God as we really are. Because he's actually interested in all of us, all of us, all of our internal lives. And so this is the last week in the series, sir. Um, but it, trust me, the next one is great, so see you next week. Um, but as I was praying about kind of the ending series, I was thinking, oh gosh, like what is God going to do to kind of wrap, like what is he saying this week? And um, I felt the words, a safe place to go, come into my head over and over and over again. And um, as I was thinking about these words, a safe place to go, um, I then had a picture and a, set, a sense to Bible verse. The picture was of a newly, newly born baby. And in particular, the first moment that that baby is lay on its mother's chest. That first moment when they're skin to skin. There's safety, there's intimacy, there's joy. It's as close as possible. To the point where a mother can feel its child's breath on her. And the child can feel its mother's breath it's so close, it's so intimate. And the Bible passage that came to mind was from Galatians 4, which says this, this is Galatians 4, 4 to 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Tonight, I think that God is inviting us to remember who he is as a father. That he's intimate, that he's loving, that he's safe. And to be filled again by his spirit so that we can actually experience his fathering. So it's not just something we know in here, but it's something that we experience in our, in our lives. Because it's when we remember who he is, a perfect father, and then we experience him proving it to us by connecting with him as our father, that we can then confidently come to him with all of these emotions we've been talking about over the last seven weeks. We can consistently come to him knowing that as Hanel spoke about, he is all, his response is always, I love you. So he's safe. So that's where we're going. You already know my conclusion. You're very welcome. 
Um, but now I'm going to spend some time getting back to the place I just told you that we're going. So to start, I'd love to give you a bit of context into this passage from Galatians. If you didn't already know, the foundation of kind of the Greco-Roman religious and civic life was the Greek pantheon of gods. And kind of depending where you lived in the um, empire, you would normally subscribe to a specific god. You would kind of join a cult to one god. Aphrodite, Zeus, Apollo would be some of the really famous ones. But Greek worship was characterized by one key thing, that you would work for, you would strive for perfection. Your life would be characterized by appeasing whatever god you worshipped, and your worth then kind of filtered down through that was all dependent on what you looked like, how smart you were, your family, how much money you had, your success because all of these things were considered kind of outward manifestations of God's pleasure and his favor on you. So it kind of gave you status amongst people. But this quite scaremongery, Greek God-controlled perfectionism was so entrenched in society that um, people rejected things that basically didn't live up to that. So much so that there are many, many historical accounts of newborn babies being left on a mountainside because they aren't perfect. Namely, because they are women or girls and because they're not able-bodied. So obviously, this is an extreme and heinous example of Hellenistic culture. But the perfectionism piece, I'd like to suggest, is still something that we suffer from. For example, have you ever felt that if you just lost a bit of weight, then someone might actually love you? And then maybe you would finally feel loved, finally feel accepted. Do you tell yourself that if you just earn a little bit more money, that's when security will come? That's when I will feel in control of my life? Or perhaps you believe that if you were more intelligent or if you just worked a little bit harder, you would be respected and finally the imposter syndrome would leave you. Finally, you would be worthy of being seen. Can I suggest that even though our desire for intimate loving relationship, even though our desire for um, a sense of security, they're not necessarily bad things in and of themselves. But when they are, um, when they're kind of, uh, twisted, actually they reveal that we all, to some degree, believe that a certain type of life, an ideal, a perfect life, um, is kind of what we're all going for. It's what we're all hoping for. And in some ways, it's what we're, we're worshipping. And so, enter stayed right, the Apostle Paul, boldly walking into this Hellenistic culture and also our culture, and declaring, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we may now receive adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship is actually more closely translated son placing. And I want to explain what son placing is, because I promise you it's going to blow your mind. 
during the first century because of this kind of entrenched perfectionism that I just talked about. As parents, you actually had the legal right to disown your children if they didn't live up to your expectations as a family. So if they didn't kind of grasp the perfectionism that you wanted in your family, then you could be like, yeah, I'm going to legally disown you. And particularly if you were wealthy, you wanted your children to behave because you wanted to, you know, give away your wealth, give away um, your estate. You wanted to give away um, your resources, your business to children that you could trust. Because you wanted these standards, once you were dead, to be upheld and for your name to kind of remain clean. But there was this term in Roman culture called sun placing. And essentially... If you didn't have biological children, or if you had rejected and displaced your, your own children, you could then adopt a male heir to take the place of your son. And what you'd do is you would most likely take a servant or a slave from your household, so someone that you knew would basically do what you had to say, like do what you say. You would take them, and you would um, adopt them. But if you were adopted, if that process had happened, once that was confirmed, by law, you could not disown this son. So there was kind of security in it. But there's more, because to get through this process of some placing, to finalise it, you had to go through some stages. Firstly, the father of the family had to get into the centre of town, so probably a town square or something, and he had to gather as many people as he could from the community, and he'd have to gather the son that he wanted to adopt, and he'd have to declare to the whole community, this boy, this is the one I'm going to adopt. So everyone had to know about it. Secondly, if this son, if this boy, if this servant of yours had any debts to his name, they had to be forgiven. And they had to be forgiven before adoption was allowed. Thirdly, the person who then was becoming the son would be given a new name. They would gain a new family. They were given a new status, a new identity. And as I mentioned, these new parents were legally binding, so no one could take this away. And fourthly and finally, this newly adopted son would get new responsibilities. He'd be welcomed into this kind of family wealth structure. So parents in the first century could disown biological children, but adopted sons could not be disowned. So when Paul says to the church in Galatia that God has chosen you, he has, in his redeeming love, adopted you into sonship. He has son-placed you what he's saying is, your heavenly father has gathered the whole world to declare, you're the one I want. You're the son I choose. This is about you. He has cancelled all your debts. He's given you a new name. He's given you responsibility and now you're part of the family business because what we're all created to do is to build his kingdom. By using this sun-placing language, Paul is actually, just in three words, revealing the covenant relationship that God has promised each of us. Nothing that anyone does to us, nothing that we do to ourselves, no one can take this away. We are a child. We are adopted, we are chosen, 
we are forgiven. Now, I know that some of you may be feeling like, yeah, Alice, this is all sounding great, but there's a few alarm bells going. It's a lot of maleness, isn't it? Sons, fathers, son placing, boys, 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 only boys. And of course, some people have argued that the language should be changed to sons and daughters or to children. But what's important for us to know is that the use of this son isn't actually talking about manliness or masculinity at all. Paul isn't making a a status or a statement on gender. Paul is revealing that we all receive the same spiritual status under Christ. So actually, if we change the language to son and daughter or children, although it sounds nice to begin with, we're actually diluting how outrageous the statement is. Because there is, whether we like it or not, cultural and historical significance to sons. In particular, the the inheriting of a family estate. But just before I move on, I just want to make it really, really clear. Paul himself actually says a few verses earlier in Galatians 3, you are all sons of God, for you were all united with Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And by all, spoiler, he means all. All of us inherit sonship. That's the point. So in light of all of that, in light of this kind of sun-placing language, what should that lead us into? I think, one, confidence, and two, intimacy. So firstly, why should each of us be absolutely brimming with confidence? Because actually none of this is on us. Our adoption isn't dependent on our behavior, on our perfection, on our level of faith right now, on our understanding of theology, on our emotional and internal lives, or on us us getting ourselves kind of out of our mess. God does it all. God is the one who does the running. The father sends his son. The son is born. The son redeems us. The father adopts us. The Father sends his spirit. The spirit fills our hearts. It's literally all done by him. So how much confidence would you have going out into the world if you could actually grasp this? If you could actually hold in your heart that it's all been done. Wherever you go, he's defending you. Wherever you go, he's loving you. Whatever you feel, he's holding you. He is saying, I'm your father and I'm with you and you are mine. The adoption papers have been sealed. They've been filed away in the can't change this room in the heavens. I don't know. All we have to do is receive it. That's all we have to do, be open open to the spirit and receive the gift. Um, a few weeks ago, I asked uh, one of my friends, Kara, who's sitting there, um, I asked her to pray with me because I was navigating lots of emotions. I had one of those weeks where if you were to bump into me, you could have said hello and I could have cried. I just felt like my skin was really thin, like 
anything could come at me. And the thing is, I actually knew where the emotions were coming from. I could pinpoint it, I could intellectualize it, I could describe it to you, I could explain it to you. But I did not want to take it to Jesus. Because the idea of taking it to Jesus, I think I had two main fears. One was that if I opened the box, I couldn't control if the box could close. So if I actually engaged with the depth of what I was feeling, the depth of the pain that was within me in that moment, I just thought, I, I might not be able to close this. And actually, if you know me, you know that one of my weaknesses, for sure, is control. Love being in control, do I? And the other thing, actually, was that if Jesus was really going to speak to me about this, what I was worried was that actually... If I'm already feeling this level of pain, if he then goes on to speak to me about it, am I actually in more pain than I'm realizing? <laughs> Could this get worse, basically? So I asked a friend to pray with me because then I couldn't get out of it. And also because the reality is, I, thought, I think we've all experienced this, sometimes it just feels a bit safer. If I'm really experiencing something intense... It's just safe to know that I could then process it with a friend after we've prayed. And that's okay. So when she arrives, instead of talking through it and then going through piece by piece what I wanted to pray for and where all of these emotions had come from, because I could have done that. Instead of doing that, instead of her hugging me, consoling me, you know, drawing close to me, comforting me, she just said, right, okay, let's sit down, invite the spirit. We don't need to chat. <laughs> it's exactly what I needed at the time. So all we did, we sat down in my flat, and we just said, Lord, we welcome your spirit. We just waited. With my eyes closed, we just waited. I think I, we probably waited for about five or ten minutes. So a considerable wait. And then after about five or ten minutes, Carrie just said to me, is Jesus saying anything to you? And I kept my eyes closed and I just explained that what Jesus had been doing was I had had a sense of him in the room. What I mean by that is almost I had a picture come into my mind. And when I say picture, I mean it was God was using my imagination. It's not like some like boom and then the Holy Spirit is falling upon me and then it's really, you know, it, it was a sense that I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to trust that God's going to use my imagination and my brain. And I'm going to trust that what he's saying is what he's saying. So I had a picture come into my head of Jesus walking into my flat or into our flat. And um, he walked into the kitchen and he greeted me. And instead of coming to sit next to me, he walked all the way over to the cooker and put on some soup. And he just stayed there for a while and he cooked the soup. And then once the soup was hot, he put it in a bowl and he came to sit very close to me. Almost on me. Like as close as he could get. And I, in this kind of picture, 
went immediately to take the spoon and feed myself. And I had a sense that Jesus just looked at me and chuckled. And then he just took the spoon from my hand and he said, let me feed you. And so we did that. I even want to think about it. It's really, it was really powerful. So all he did was feed me and feed me and feed me and feed me for a long time. It wasn't that complicated. <laughs> it wasn't difficult to understand. And I just let him do it. And the thing I found powerful about it, or some of the things I found powerful about it, was that he knew not only what, exactly what I needed, but that he so kindly revealed the like, root of the problem. The thing is, I'd spent years, no joke, years, maybe eight years, tr being, finding this particular thing very difficult. And I had done everything I could in my own strength. I'd had loads of therapy. I'd read lots of books. I'd done lots of pretending to practice self-care, which I'm so bad at. I'm that person who runs the bath and is in it for like three minutes, and I'm like, yes, self-care. Um, <laughs> I'm so bad at it. Um, but I'd done all of that stuff. And to be clear, I'm not saying that any of that stuff is bad stuff. All great stuff. Could not recommend a therapist enough. But my point is, from all of that process, I'd just been like, I can do this. I can process all of this pain. I can do it on my own. I've got all of the, like, the things that you need, all of the building blocks. And so I'm just going to do it on my own. And in this experience of Jesus, I realized I just never actually allowed Jesus to feed me. I'd never actually allowed him to parent me through it never actually allowed him to care for me and to take the burden. And the truth is, although I was honest about the fact that I was nervous that the pain would get worse, the truth is that Jesus is not in the business of intensifying our pain or catching us off guard and being like, oops, there's loads more down there, <laughs> just surprising you. Jesus is in the business of healing us, of taking the pain away. If you read about what he does in the Gospels, you watch as he goes from town to town to town to town to heal. It's not like, and then this one person, Laura, was left with more pain. You know, that's not what happens in, the, that's not what happens in Scripture. So I don't know why I am like, this one girl, Alice, was left with more pain. No, that's not what it says. So this is the second promise of our adoption. Not only confidence that it just has been done, but that we can draw close to him. Because unlike the Greek legal process, our heavenly, our heavenly adoption isn't just one of status and assurance, although it is that. Adoption into the kingdom is a promise for intimacy, 
I'll remind you of verse six. It says, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. And you may already know this, but that word Abba speaks of the closeness between a child and a parent. Abba is actually most closely translated to just da, 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 da. Like not even childlike, baby-like. If you can imagine like as a baby like looks up to its father with its arms stretched out, da, 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 I want you to comfort me. I want you to love me. I want you to draw close to me. That's what this language is talking about. And this isn't the only time, of course, in the Bible that there, that there are stories that reveal God's closeness and his love and his desire to be connected to each of us. Take Psalm 103, for example, it says, as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Just so you know, the word fear is more like, it's translated more like worship him, bow before him, not like fear scary, like fear he is on a throne. He is supreme. He is powerful. That kind of like, wow, he is who he says he is. But all commentators agree that the use of the word compassion here is radical. In fact, it's such an intimate Hebrew word that a commentator I read this week described it as embarrassing. Embarrassing that it would be used. Because it would never be used in a relation to a father. Because it stems from the word that means the mother's womb. It speaks of such intimacy, such kind of like skin-to-skin contact, that it's the word that you would use to describe a nursing mother and kind of her expression of love to feed her child. That's how intimate we're getting. That's what God is wanting of us. That's what he's inviting us into. As the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And this is the exact kind of thing Paul is trying to get at with the Abba language. This is not about our belief. This is about our experience. This is about our relationship. This is about our intimacy with him. So why then is it so hard sometimes, often? Why is it so hard to draw close to him as our father? And obviously I can't go into all of the reasons. There'll be reasons for all of us that may differ. But I think one major reason is that we all kind of suffer in varying degrees from projection theology. We project our earthly experiences of love, our earthly experiences of authority, our earthly experiences of parenting, of mothering, of fathering. We project those experiences onto our Heavenly Father. And we kind of continue to live life with this perspective that God our Father is actually just like our earthly parents, our earthly authority figures. That means that for some of us, we come to God thinking, we've just got to do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten to get close to him. We just need to make sure that we've got through the process of doing whatever it is to you know, make ourselves worthy or clean in front of his eyes. Or we believe deep down that he's just not really interested in us. He's just kind of, we're over here somewhere. Like, he's around, he's present, but certainly not present for us. Some, for some of us, we may even believe that we deserve to be detached from him. 
that for whatever reason, the messages we've received growing up have been, you deserve not to be loved, this is on you. Or, as I just explained, you feel like you could do it on your own. And for some of us, we also feel like we have to earn his love and validation. It's like a Christmas present. It's like Santa. It's like, if I'm good, then he'll love me. If I'm good, he will bless me with his Holy Spirit. But only if I'm good. And obviously, I want to recognize that for some of us, this is particularly hard because we have had particularly traumatic experiences. So I'm not like disregarding that this is not a process And even the mention of trusting a father for some people might be like, fathers just aren't trustworthy. That's painful. But can I encourage you that what we have to remember, however real all of these things feel for very legitimate reasons, that they're actually all inaccurate views of who God is. They may well be very accurate views of our experience but our Heavenly Father is not like that. There is nothing that you can do to make him love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make him love you less. So what do we do? How do we, how do we get rid of these distortions? How do we draw close to him? How, how, how? How do we get this intimacy? Well, it's in verse six again. God sent his spirit, 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 many, many times. God sent his spirit of the son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father, double spirit. It is the spirit that cries out Abba Father. It is the spirit who helps us. As I explained in my story, it was an experience of the spirit that revealed to me what I needed. It was an experience of the spirit that connected me with Jesus. It was an experience of the spirit that enabled me to release my sense of burden and be set free. That is why we bang on about the Holy Spirit so much at St. Peter's. (laughs) Because it's literally the bedrock of how we can develop and continue an intimate and powerful and transformational and healing relationship with God without being continually filled again and again and again and again and never too much and again and again, we actually don't really have a hope of navigating the things that we've been talking about for the last eight weeks. Because he is the one person who can change us. He's the one person who can heal us. And he's the one who can perfectly parent us. He is the one who loves us despite everything. And whose very job description it is to be there for us. No exceptions. Absolutely no exceptions. Our Father in heaven is the one who will always respond to our outstretched arms. Because he's your Abba. He's your father. And he has gathered the whole world to declare that you're his. So why don't we stand?
because none of this, as I said, is about us or about me or about the talk. It's about the spirit. <laughs> if you feel comfortable, why don't you just um, close your eyes?